everybody. Thanks for joining us for another Down the Hatch podcast. This is an interesting episode in that we've never done anything quite like this before. That is, we are going to be talking about a topic we already talked about because that talk that topic was so talked about. I didn't get that right. I'm going to try it again. We are going to be talking about a topic that we already talked about because that topic was so talked about. Yay, I did it. <laughs> The topic we're talking about is the Give Hope episode that we uh, uploaded December 2019. It was the very first time we had a patient perspective down the hatch podcast. And Jim's story resonated so much that we, Alicia and I have been getting a lot of commentary about that from clinicians, not from patients, not from other medical professionals, not from caregivers, but from clinicians who are practicing primarily in dysphagia management. Um, As you guys probably know, we like to get our discussion going with somebody else who we think is, um, will provoke thought or is just plain old provocative. So on this podcast, we have our our four-time returning guest, Ed Bice. Um, I'm sure you guys know his name if you're in social media. If you've listened to any of our podcasts and you've listened to ones with him on it. But also, he spent quite a bit of time working with ACP and going from uh, sniff to sniff or setting to setting, talking with clinical speech pathologists. So you might know him from that. You might know that he now works with IOP Medical. That's Iowa Oral Performance Instrument, if you're not familiar with that is. So he continues to be somebody who's in touch with the world of social media and some of the issues that are going on there, who's directly in contact with clinicians similar to those described in that Give Hope podcast, who might be the kind of person interacting with Jim and trying to um, understand both perspectives of the patient, the caregiver, and uh, is also pretty well versed in what the research literature says. So um, after saying all that, hopefully you understand why we asked Ed to be part of this. Um, Ed, Did you want to say hi and add anything new to that? Hi. No, I think you covered it. Okay. Now, I will say that before we get started, uh, we generally are not scripted. And I'm not saying we have a script. In fact, we're going to, as Alicia says, go so off the rails this time because uh, that's just what we do. But I have a feeling this is going to be one of those podcasts. But I did before this ask Ed to pull out some salient points just so he kind of could look at a couple of bullet points in his notepad. So we are kind of following the rules where we're unscripted, but he might have some points he's sort of written down after having listened to the podcast. I strongly suggest that if you haven't yet listened to the podcast, that you listen to it before listening to this episode, because I think it will make better, better sense. And if you want to listen to the episode again after this, it might be fun. Okay. Leash, did you want to say anything before we talk to Ed about his first point? No, let's get right into it. All right, Ed, let's do it. So the first thing that struck me was kind of the um, the interventions that were being selected. So, so Jim said that for the first 60 days, he did Shakir's and EMST. <laughs> and yes, so and, and that was based on a fees assessment. So the first question, and I'm not here to debate fees versus MBS or whatever, but the first question that I thought of was, what do you see on a fees that would indicate you need to do a Shakir or use EMST? Hmm. So just so I'm um, clear and make sure the folks who are listening are clear, this is somebody who's had a brainstem stroke 
and saw clinicians in the acute setting as well as in the, uh, I guess, rehab setting, right? Or outpatient yeah. setting, sorry. And this person, this, this is somebody who did, who fortunately had imaging. I mean, it could have been a case where there was no imaging at all, right? Um, and he said that the first thing he had was fees. And one of the things he did was Shakir. Now, one thing that I do remember from his fees is that he had zero zero pharyngeal constriction and and this is after we saw him a year out uh, or more than a year out so i'm suspecting and we could see that his ues was an opening on fees and that's because he had no whiteout so perhaps that's how they came to that conclusion that nothing was moving and we did see that as well we did floral first we did fees and we could see that they corresponded really well we didn't make that determination because we had fees second when by the time he came to see us we would have known that from fees alone leash you were there what do you think yeah, I guess where my brain goes is what I distinctly remember about the story and, and the rationales behind things that happened is that there wasn't... Now, you're explaining, Ianessa, what would be a rationale for using the Shakir based on what we saw, right? But <clears throat> one of the things that I Oh, sorry, sorry, or, sorry. I just want to say... I let me be clear. I'm not doing saying this is a rationale for Shakir. I'm saying it's a rationale for identifying that UES is a problem, not necessarily that that treatment should have happened, sure. but the idea that fees can see whether or not the UES is an opening if there's no pharyngeal squeeze, whether I would have done a Shakir or not, different issue. Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think though it speaks to a larger, a larger discussion point, and maybe Ed, this is where your brain was, but. There's a couple of things that we really promote in dysphagia management. One is to have an objective evaluation, to have an instrumental, to visualize the physiology. So typically that's either fees or fluoro um, predominantly. And another thing that we also promote in dysphagia management is the use of um, treatments that are have good evidence-based practice, that have, have papers that support its use, that... Um, that we're not using some extraneous sort of treatment like K's and G's for tongue-based retraction. Like some of those things have really sort of been phased out because there's really no literature to support their use. But then there's this third element of well, what if you are doing both, but they don't connect to each other. So you're doing a fees or you're doing a fluoro and you're prescribing a treatment, but what if what if both of them aren't being used to their maximal benefit? So I don't recall ever reading a rationale for why the Shakir was implemented or why EMST was implemented. But I can say what I see a lot in clinical practice is that these treatments are predominantly prescribed because there's papers on them, because they're, in the case of EMST, they're device driven, so they're popular. And the connection between what is seen on the instrumental evaluation and the treatment that prescribed, that's where I see a big a big gap often in our field is connecting the two together. Is that where you were going then? Yeah, I think so. And I'll tell you, and I have permission to talk about another case that is also a brainstem stroke that's a friend of mine, Ines, I mentioned uh, him to you when we were on the phone. For example, what you were saying, uh, Alicia, I saw his modified after he had had almost a month of therapy. And 
in his modified, he had a Wallenberg syndrome, looked just like this gym that you interviewed, no UES opening, a lot, you know, decreased pharyngeal constriction. And when I walked in on the first day, the therapist was using a half teaspoon of thin liquid with him. This was before I saw the MBS. Then I asked if I could see the MBS. And when she gave him 10 mLs of pudding, his UES opened beautifully. But she was afraid he was going to aspirate. And so she was using very small amounts. And I'm not sure what the rationale was for thin liquid. But yes, she wasn't even using the results that she saw right. on the instrumental to develop her treatment plan. Right. And that's what, yeah, where you were going with that. And yes, I agree. I always, I have a problem. Is it that we don't know how to use the information that we're obtaining? Like we don't understand what intervention might be appropriate. And so we just default. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think there's a lack of, here's where I think our training in dysphagia is really lacking is in the ability to critically think through and use the tools that we have in the in the in a manner that's most beneficial right so a good example of that is um with the mbsimp training so the mbsimp is really really great for um giving clinicians standardized language so that we're all explaining physiology using the same terms, right? And that we're all measuring it in a way that's similar. Um, and the the problem that I see is that sometimes it stops there. So I'll read reports where somebody is validated in MBSIMP and they are listing out the physiologic components and they're describing them beautifully, but then there's no synthesis of the information. Right. There's no description of why, why does the person, so you can say they have t reduced tongue-based retraction, they have poor epi epiglottic inversion, they have minimal laryngeal vestibule closure, they have poor pharyngeal constriction. It's kind of a laundry list of impairments, right? And they're probably describing them accurately, but then there's no synthesis of the inf information to describe why is this person aspirating? What is happening? Telling the story of, of the components and why, um, you know, why certain boluses are unsafe or less safe or why others are not, and then tying that to the treatment, right? Because that's really, as the clinician, that's really our, should be our bread and butter, right? Is to be able to take that objective information, tie it together, and then with that, it tells a great story so that before you even read what the treatment is, you're already thinking, oh, based on this beautiful description of the physiology, I already know where they're going to go with the treatment. And to me, it's that middle piece that's, that is most lacking in documentation. So what ends up happening is that um, what I often see is just a laundry list of impairments and then a laundry list of treatments that were provided. And I don't get the connection between the two. But is that because we don't know? Uh, so we, we do, we take a class like MBSIMP, which is an awesome class and we're not knocking MBSIMP. It actually no, does that give wasn't people- No, it was to teach, right. it wasn't teach clinicians how to critically think, it was to standardize the language. Right, right. so it did its job, but mm -hmm. still we, we don't have the skills then to take that information, synthesize it into a treatment plan but yet we're therapists. 
So can I jump in here and say there are a few things happening? One is none of this matters in terms of imaging. So there are a couple things you guys were talking about that made me think. The first thing is, um, did they even test the right things on fees or fluoro? And secondarily, how do you analyze it properly? How do you go about making decisions, which is the other thing about you know, how do you describe what you're seeing? How do you synthesize it? And third, I guess there are three things, is how does that connect to treatment? But I would argue before any of that is the case, I promise you, I might actually bet some money on this. If, I don't know who the mm-hmm. clinician was, no clue. But if this clinician is representative of many of the individuals who I've interacted with, and Ed, you probably have a sense of this too. I happened to just give a talk recently in Florida and you know, this was probably, it was my umpteenth talk on a very similar topic. And and they were feeling dismayed because they didn't know the basic information about just how a swallow works. And I said, guys, on one hand, don't feel dismayed because it's not that your group can't answer these questions. I ask these questions knowing no one's gonna answer the question. And then I end up saying, there is no consequence for people who studies, who treat swallowing primarily to not know how a swallow works. There's zero consequence, otherwise none of you guys would have a job. I also say it is possible to be at a sniff where you spend 75 plus percent of your time doing swallowing, never having seen a swallow the whole time you've worked there. So given Mm -hmm. that this is the state of our field, the first issue is who cares? whether they did fees or fluoro, who cares whether they did the right treat, uh, boluses, who cares whether they in, actually interpreted properly and who cares about the treatment if you don't have the capacity to explain the way a swallow works because everything after that is contingent upon your knowledge of swallowing physiology. It makes It's no wonder to me that these protocols in general are needed to the point where people are saying, what exact protocol do you use on fluoro? To me, that question doesn't make sense. What is the physiology you saw you you were suspecting at baseline at bedside? To me, it's it's connecting the clinical eval to the instrumental. Your knowledge of swallowing, your ability to segue or spontaneously make decisions in the moment, as opposed to this bolus and that bolus. That, that doesn't make sense. It to me, what makes sense is to say we should be able to have a general template, but have the capacity to move away from that as needed and not in a prescribed way, in the way that is that is representative or reflective of your knowledge of the patient, of the patient's needs, of what you saw clinically, what you think you might want to do after this fluoro, and hopefully some other person who, a caregiver, maybe somebody who's in the room who has some thoughts, you know, he really wants to do this or she wants to really, really do that. So that to me is the bigger issue where it's, this is a symptom of a bigger problem. The fact that we're, that it's, do they not know this or who doesn't know what? Our our training doesn't prepare us to be able to even get to that point. Sure. And I would argue that I think, and I, and now I'm, I'm catching myself in the moment doing this. And I think we have an overemphasis on tying the physiology to some magic treatment, the Shakir, all of these things, when I think that what is actually being prescribed in terms of true exercises matters so little in comparison to the need for an understanding of how rehab works in general, (laughs) to be able to know that allowing somebody to have actual food experiences to allow them to eat various textures and consistencies and what they're actually doing on a day-to-day basis in terms of 
eating or not eating, I think that that is probably, those decisions are far more important than, well, did you give them the Shakir or did you give them the tongue hold or both? I think that that probably matters so little compared to just the decisions that we're having with the patients about what they should be doing with their bodies. You know what? I love that because I still think that if PTs were having long form discussions about the um, RPMs on the bike only that these that these patients were on and never about whether they ever walk it's like they no no they're not walking they're just they're on a bike that's it everyone would be like when are they going to get to walk doesn't that impact their ability to ever walk again be like yeah i mean but i mean they had this x you know treatment which suggests that but it wouldn't make any sense so again we're coming down to this idea that one if you don't understand the way a swallow works it's not going to work but importantly even if you do and you are super more afraid about somebody aspirating than anything else, it doesn't even matter because the person is never going to get to practice on the behavior that they're having trouble with, which to me is your point, Alicia, about the essentials of salience in uh, principles of neuroplasticity that we've talked about before and the fact that they have to be doing that task in some way, shape or form, which kind of brings me to the point of this patient saying, you know, NPO is a death sentence, but also he actually thought he swallowed and the person said, no, you didn't. So it's kind of like, what? Yeah, so well, the really... answer, yeah, I think that was an interesting point. And one of the things that he said was, I knew I wasn't going to get better if I didn't swallow, if I didn't practice swallowing. He knew that, but the speech pathologist didn't understand that, which is kind of an interesting, and he said he was sneaking food. Yeah. So what do we do well, to our patients where they feel like they have, they're sneaking? What, I mean, what does that say about us? Mm -hmm. So it's super interesting in the lab that I work in now, they have a real emphasis on community ambulation. So one of the things that they're finding in the PT literature is that it matters far less the, when, you, when patients have a stroke and they have gait impairment, there's all this work on putting patients on um, split treadmill paradigms and, and getting them and, and using, um, you know, like putting them on a treadmill, putting them on a bike, putting them on these devices and, and they're practicing intensity and they're practicing repetitions. They're, they're using a lot of principles of neuroplasticity, but what they're finding is that what matters most is actually getting these patients out into the real world hmm. and their rehab, what they're doing now in a lot of rehab paradigms is hooking a GPS up to, on people's legs and saying, that you need to go out into the real world. You need to be, um, you know, in an uh, on uneven ground. You need to be walking paths with different types of surfaces. You need to be going into a CVS where you have to step over the guardrails, like whatever it is that we encounter in real life situations. And what they see is when when um, when these patients are the more that they go out and community ambulate, it does far more for their recovery than being in a gym for an hour and going hardcore on a on a treadmill. Right. You know what? And it's when you think about it, it's like, well duh, but but it's not duh, right? It's like they're realizing just the value in those in the variety of experiences and doing what's in the real world. Yeah. I have a slide that I've been giving in the CTDM talk along those lines forever. And it's kind of a gotcha slide, but it basically says that I, I get everybody in, you know, the, so, here's a slide. It says something like a patient is an MBS and is discovered that they aspirate on thins to prioritize safety. 
a couple of options happen. One is if you want to see what they can eat without aspirating, you try different consistencies. On the other hand, if you would like to see if they can continue to have thins, then you try thins with other postural adjustments. I said, does this sound reasonable? And everyone goes, yep, sounds perfectly reasonable. This is, yep, this sounds right in line with what we're doing. And I'll say, can you tell me why it is that we would try to keep them from eating the thing that they're actually having a problem with then? Nobody can answer the question. Why don't they get to have thins in the circumstance that they're having trouble with? And when they ask that question, it's kind of like, but they're not safe, but they're not safe but they're not safe. It's always about keeping them from doing the behavior that they're gonna have trouble with. And if that's our philosophy, then we don't belong in rehab. We belong in some field where all we do is, uh, you know, keep people from eating. Cause that's the, you know, it's like we're Weight Watchers. I don't know what we are exactly, but it's something where we just wanna block people from opportunities to get better. That just spawned two thoughts for me. One was, and I'm not sure that this came through on the podcast with Jim, but he really never had active therapy after he came to your first visit. He, he consulted with the two of you, you talked, but he never had therapy. His Mm -hmm. therapy was he went home and ate and he just tried different things and trialed and kept going. And his feeding tube is now out according to his podcast. So the fact that he didn't have therapy helped him get better, which is a sad commentary. Yep. Can I say so, something about that real quick, Ed? Just so for people who sure. might not be clear, I want people to understand this is somebody who had a brainstem stroke and went through over a year of speech therapy where they were doing regular, one, one, at one point it was five days a week therapy with him. Um, and then he finally contacted us and we saw him with periods in between that were several weeks and in between we just didn't stop him from swallowing anything and from that point you would think somebody who's had a stroke if they come to you with these significant swallowing problems you might say well you know your brain is where it's going to be you're not going to get better but actually still in this situation doing the task with no therapy in the in, in between was helpful now every time I do this talk People go, well, I know this is a research study and you couldn't treat him, but if you're in clinic, what would you treat? And I always say, nothing. I don't need to stand over him while he swallows. I don't need to watch him eat. It's not going to make anything different. In fact, it might just block it from being realistic, as realistic as possible, to Alicia's point about being at home, making a meal, doing all these things, breaking up your day with a meal, making it as generalizable to the real world as possible. And the response is always, well, we have to treat people. So no, you have productivity demands. That's different from having to treat people. There's physiology and then there's budgetary concerns with keeping a job. Those are not the same things. What was your other point? My second point yeah, my second point was, and, and the three of us had this discussion um, after, while, while I was visiting your lab and Jim was actually there. And after he left, we talked about the word safety. Do you remember that conversation? Of course. Yeah. So, because there was this comment about, well, the last time you were here, we told you what was safe and what wasn't safe. And for anybody who follows me or who knows me well, you know that that word just makes the, the hair on the back of my neck stand up safe. Because what is safe and what, what is unsafe, we don't know. And, and the three of us had a conversation after he left, is that nothing was unsafe for him. He, yes, he was aspirating a great deal, which was an objective statement. We watched that on Floro. But he had no consequences of that aspiration. So in reality, nothing was unsafe for him. So just because we see something on fluoro on fees happen, 
we cannot make the judgment call that it is safe or unsafe. We can only say objectively what happened and wait to see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's this, different for this every is, person. Yeah, this is a major problem that we have because when we see something go into the airway, we automatically become frightened and think safety. Mm-hmm. But, but we don't know how to quantify that in any way. Well, I think right. there are a couple, I think it's a little deeper. So one thing that we do talk about is that swallowing has two goals. One is to get the food into the esophagus and stomach, etc. That's what we call bolus efficiency. The other thing is that there is an intricate mechanism involved in making sure that the bolus does not go into the trachea. Now, it's not foolproof, but it's pretty darn accurate. So it's there for reasons because obviously if everything we ate went as much into the trachea as is into the esophagus, there would be a point where human beings, you know, might not make it. So I I totally get that. However, I think the issue really is that perhaps people should be just describing when aspiration happened without the interpretation of what it means, because the truth is we don't know what it means. It's certainly relevant to say these boluses had this aberrant bolus flow. These ones did not. But I agree that interpreting it as safe in our field, in this world, means that it will penetrate to the point where they can't do anything because we're so risk averse. But if you think of other fields that don't have these issues like PT, they can still say fall risk, but it doesn't mean the person's never get a chance to walk. Our culturally for us, that word means so much more than their world that there are a lot of say, I've heard many PT say, oh no, 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 he's not safe to walk yet. But there's still this idea that it doesn't mean they're gonna say he's bedridden forever because he's not safe to walk right now. That's our problem is culturally, that word safe means the person's life is cut short in many ways. I also think there's another aspect of this that our field has, um, there's been a little bit of a cultural shift in our field where I, <clears throat> I think a lot of clinicians have experienced in their practice a situation where they work in maybe in a medical facility or somewhere where they have to Uh, pushback against physicians in getting instrumentation for a patient, right? So you have to say to a physician, this person absolutely needs uh, a video swallow study. Here's the reasons why. And maybe they get pushed back and say, no, 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 they don't need it, blah, blah, blah. And you take the patient down, they finally agree, and you get them a study. And I've seen this happen a lot. And I used to do this in my career a lot too, where I would come back and I would be like, see, they're aspirating. They definitely needed that study. And there's this emphasis on see something bad happened. And if we didn't do this instrumentation, we wouldn't have caught it. Right. And I think that there's an overemphasis in trying to justify our field and trying to justify what we do and to make it into something of we are the ones that we're the only ones that can determine like whether it's getting into their airway or not. And with that, I think maybe even subconsciously, it's we've created this emphasis on the aspiration on the bolus because that's those are things that other um, that physicians and that other practitioners understand and can understand the weight of it. Um, and I think it's just kind of been a way to like justify what we're doing. Um, so I think that might pay, play a small part of it. Um, and so I look are- forward to ways that we can stop having that conversation and evolve our field into really talking about the the rehab and and you know what we're doing moving forward versus just the aspiration. So are you suggesting that maybe we have power because 
as long as we say aspiration can equal pneumonia and pneumonia can equal death, that we have some kind of power that we don't have if we don't make yeah. people believe this. I think that, I mean, it's not just clinicians, it's researchers too, because when we write grants and when we write papers, what's the first paragraph of every single dysphagia paper that you read? Dysphagia, <laughs> you know, X amount of people have dysphagia. Dysphagia can lead to aspiration. Aspiration pneumonia is the leading cause of death in neurologic and neurodegenerative diseases. Like this is the same paragraph that we read in every paper. It's the impact statement. So it's not surprising that there's such an emphasis on this. And it's not just clinicians, it's, it's researchers as well. I mean, we have to hit home that what we're doing is important, but how do we move away from that, right? Well, that, I mean, not to say it's not important, because it is, it is. Otherwise it would be like, well, what are we doing, right? Who cares? Well, two things. One is, this is why when I hear clinicians say things like, all these clinicians are, I brought this person down the floor and they weren't aspirating. It's almost like a failure. You know, it's kind of like, does this mean I don't know when to do it? You're not bringing them down to prove you're right at the bedside. You're going to bring them down because nothing at the bedside is ever going to show you if they were aspirating or not. The point of the bedside is not to prove your worth in your clinical acumen ever. So that's one. And I think you're right that that whole idea pushes this thing that like I failed because he didn't fail. What the fuck? Right. I, it, it's an interesting point because we, we never discussed that on this podcast. And I think it's I think it's huge. I mean, it, you know, I've been in situations before, you know, when I was at Hopkins where I worked in the ICU and there were times where it took a team of people to bring my patient down to Floro. They were on, um, you know, they, they were trach. They maybe were receiving mechanical ventilation. It took a respiratory therapist. It took a physician to come down. It was this huge thing. And they come down and, you know, I'm advocating up the wazoo. This patient needs imaging. They need imaging. We need to understand. We can't figure it out at the bedside. And you bring them down and their swallow's normal. And there is a moment of like... But I really thought that there was going to be an issue and you're like apologizing. And yeah, I totally get the that feeling of of oh, I made a wrong call. Yeah. And, and again, not again, the- culturally, that's because it's so hard for us to get this that it's almost like IVF or something where you're like, man, this baby is costing me thirty five thousand dollars over here. I need this egg to catch. You heard me. And it's just like when those yeah. are the stakes, the stakes are that high. A routine test becomes a big deal. Do you think that ER docs feel like they failed because someone came up with symptoms of a fractured limb and they don't have a fractured limb? No, because there's right. not there's not this idea like you told us we were going to, you know, get this thing and it didn't happen. There's no the stakes aren't that high for them. So they don't put their whole career on the line. But the other thing I wanted to say about your point, Alicia, which I thought was really good about in research, and of course, with the NIH, for instance, the whole point is for health. So if this is about health, you need to say why it could be bad as well. So I get your I get that point. I think when you say what do we do with this, that research and clinic is tied up in it. I do think the issue is that everybody does this to bill for Medicare, whatever you have to say, what the medical consequences if you don't do X, Y and Z for for the NIH, you have to say, if we don't study, you know, preterm issues and blah, 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 we could have so many child deaths, whatever it is, you have to say that. But the difference, again, is that in our culture, we still have not worked out whether or not the circumstances under which this aspiration really is going to cause these issues. So we might be 
barking up the wrong tree. And so in our case, we've spent all this time talking about things without knowing the real medical consequence, which is why there have been some sort of commentary about the residue idea, for instance, that show me where it matters. And I think we need to take a step back and say, Yes, we know it's possible for problems to happen, but we haven't quite defined them. So let's define them first so we know when we need to bark up the tree and when we don't need to. But it hasn't happened in the research world and it hasn't happened in the clinical world. So we just start to do a lot of screaming and hand-waving in case. Yeah. Well, and then, and then if we're going to work in a medical model, so we're in all of these medical settings, why do we feel like our clinical assessment has to be has to coincide with imaging why can't we start teaching and talking about i have a theory and i need to test this theory rather than i need to prove myself or i need to show you that this is true it's i have a theory and i need to investigate see if this theory is accurate or not well because people have been introduced to the clinical bedside first things first is it is more likely that you're going to be in a setting where you have to make comments about swallowing without imaging. When you're when you accept a job like that, what do you do? You you quit the job if you really believe that, Ed, or you keep the job and try to con convince people you need imaging, or you keep the job and try to convince yourself that you don't need imaging. It's one of those three. There's there's not like these anyone else. So when when that's your life situation, if we're being realistic. Not many people are quitting their job over that. They might jump to a different job, but they're not quitting it. A lot of people have done the advocacy thing where they try to say, we need it, we need it, we need it. But they know on a day-to-day -day basis, they're still not having it. So they have to reconcile that. It's and not like they're going to get it tomorrow. Exactly. Right? They give a period. It's a process. Yeah. And then finally, most people, it's uh, there was a post you were making at some point, um, Ed, recently, today or yesterday, about people who say, who justify that we don't need imaging because primarily because they don't have access to it. And you were saying the need for Im imaging is independent of whether you have access to it or not. It's not like, you know, it, it just, it doesn't make sense for you to, to, to consider that you don't need imaging, therefore, or you don't have imaging, therefore it's really not necessary. It's what Alicia said a long time ago in that podcast where you said you knew that if you had a day where you were gonna be slammed, some of the patients who probably really should have got imaging didn't get it. But if it was a quiet day and productivity was low, some of those people got imaging. So yeah, that happens yeah. in more than our medical domain. Don't you think, I mean, there are obviously times where MRI or some other uh, uh, department or service is slammed and not everybody gets what they're supposed to get. You know, so, it, it, you know, you have people having babies in the hallway sometimes like, look, I don't know where these pregnant people came from, but it happened. Sure. But a lot of it, I think a lot of that, though, is mitigated because the person who orders the MRI may be the primary care physician and they have no knowledge of what the schedule at, in the MRI suite is. So they're making right. their decisions independent of all of these other mitigating factors, whereas we're trying to think about all these things and juggle all these balls. And I don't see other healthcare professionals doing that. I understand your point. But your point is say, your point is that we're still saying we're not even signing them up for it because they're not going to get it anyway. Whereas the physician's like, we know you need it. I'm sorry it took a long time, but we're not saying you don't need it. Right. If, right. If I could give a clinician one piece of advice, this would be it because I think this is so important. Is we need to not change our practice to accommodate to the system, but the power of documentation is very, very, very powerful. 
So instead of, if you know you have a patient that has imaging and you, or needs imaging mm-hmm. and you know they're not going to get it, instead of trying to use eloquent language for your bedside evaluation to justify your recommendations, you can say, I, this, I recommend that this patient gets a video fluoroscopic swallow study for all of these reasons, because I can't see things at bedside. I mean, there's more eloquent ways to say this, right? But but this is, these are the limitations. This is what I'm recommending. And if you continue to document that and document that and say it over and over and over again, then that is more powerful than almost anything that you can do. I think that if everybody started doing that more often and saying, hey, I was not able to get my patient down to radiology because of scheduling, they're still being discharged, Here's what I here's what I recommend. I think that we have to be more powerful in using the medical record than changing our practice to accommodate the system. So what I usually back, go ahead, Ed. I was gonna say, can we even back up from there and say ethically is the first question we ask ourselves when we're presented with a new patient case is do I have the skills, the knowledge, and the resources to take care of this patient? It, shouldn't that be the first question we ask ourselves before we even move forward? Ed, no one's going to say no to that. I'm telling you right now, no one is going to say no to that. And if they do, they're going to look around and say, well, neither does she or her or him or the, they're going to look at all their peers and say, none of us do. So why should I be the one to, to not take to not get my productivity? I'm telling you, the self-preservation is too is more powerful than documentation. Like, it's just this thing where there's not going to be anyone who says, you know what, I can't do this because I don't know what I'm doing, knowing that everybody around them is the same way if they need a job. Well, but can we bring up something that, that Jim said in the podcast? That, yes, we can. That, that we all have to know that this therapist knew this wasn't right, that he was getting electrical stimulation. They were putting it on him. He was going to physical therapy and let it run its course. And then he was coming back and the speech pathologist was taking off the electrode. And they did that for months and called that swallowing therapy. I hear you. Now we all, yeah, we all have to agree that that therapist knew that that was egregious. By you, by we, do you I mean us so. three? Do you think us three? Because- Well, we, I guess, yes. <laughs> I mean, us three, I and, guess. <laughs> and every us three and everybody else who is willing to say that, but is anyone gonna actually say that to the clinician next to them who's doing that, who you work with? Those are the more impactful people to say, I see you doing that and that's unethical, if they really believe it. People actually have well, to say something. Physical- even well, the, the physical, physical therapist, therapist may or may not know. I don't know anything about what the physical therapist does know. So I, I would prefer to leave that person out there. Because uh, honestly, okay. maybe I've seen some things that PTs were doing. I just didn't know. Alicia, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that I think at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think that many people think what they're doing is egregious. I think that they believe that it's the best we got. And it's sort of a situation where there's a lot in medicine that it's just the best we have. And it may not be an ideal situation or an ideal treatment. There may not be a cure, but it's, you got to try it. And I I hear that a lot. Um, And it's reinforced by um, industry who's telling us to use 
to put the electrodes on and to leave them. No, and see, that's the thing I was going to say. I was actually going to interrupt, wait till you're done there and say, it's not the best we have because I still don't know of any ESTEM training that says put it on and walk away. They all say they need to be doing something with it. So technically, if that person was trained, I don't know anything about who this person is. I don't know what kind of ESTEM and I don't know if they got the box and never actually trained on it because that's also possible. You don't, you know, people can use it without you know, maybe a, cl- a colleague has it, went, got trained, they just picked it up and used it. So my issue is in that circumstance, if that's what really happened, then that wasn't the best. But I agree with you 100% that the, the default will always be, I'm still doing what my peers are doing. And if, and I'm, we're doing the best, we are doing the best we can. So get off your high horse and don't be telling yeah. us that we need to be doing better. Because frankly, I would say, what is the best we can though? What data show that anything you're doing helps? It's your job to produce the data to show that what you're, that the job you have actually is valuable. But until, until anyone's job is on the line, I'm not exactly sure, or our field is on the line. I'm not exactly sure that there's going to be a, a big, a big C change. Is that what well, C change or something like that? Yeah, I guess when I said industry, what I'm, what I'm, what I meant to say is that you can go to a lot of different types of CEU courses that are going to tell you to do whatever. I mean, a lot of CEU courses are not vetted, right? So maybe this clinician went to a CEU course at a hospital that was led by a clinician who put electrodes on an individual and left them and said, hey, I do this and it works and here's why you should do it. And then the clinician goes, well, it's a CEU course. Like I learned something, I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to implement it. I think that that's another issue is that a, a lot of like a lot of people who are providing information out there aren't vetted and maybe we're not doing a good job of of vetting people that we There's gather no information vetting process from. anymore to my knowledge so again mm-hmm. i told i in the asha ceu uh asha ceu in the asha training not asha training asha pad, podcast uh i mentioned that uh, our course has always had to get some kind of peer review of some sort. It wasn't just if we paid the money, we got it. Then one year we didn't have to do it anymore. And I, I was told that Ash is not doing that. So I'm not 100% sure where exactly the truth is. But my understanding is that there is less of a vetting process in terms of whether, whether and truly you can submit your slides but it doesn't, how many times, Alicia, have we been at a meeting where the, the abstract and the topic seemed amazing? And then when you saw the talk, you're like, wait, what? You know what I mean? So it, it's, it, the, process, the, the issue is that you cannot go to a CEU course, and I'm not suggesting that clinicians are doing this, with this empty brain, like, just fill me up. You have to go into a CEU course with some understanding or some ability to have a conversation or to interact. If you go in, if honestly, if you go any place like that, you're vulnerable to all kinds of snake oilsmen or whatever. Uh, it's just the way it is in life. It's not. It's, we're not, we're not um, exempt from that as speech pathologists. Yeah, and so I think with social media nowadays, you do have to be very careful about really thinking about who you're getting your information from because anybody can go online and call themselves an expert and be and very be very confident in what they're saying and that's just the reality of the world we live in i mean it's it's not just in our field this is everywhere right like anybody can 
put anything out online and um, even if it looks fancy and if it looks, you know, really nice that you really have to be critical about where this information is coming from. So what makes some people a skeptic and some people embrace everything they hear with open arms? Why is it that when some people hear that speech pathology can stop bedwetting, we are, you know, our eyes roll back in our heads and, and we want to get up and scream and yell and other people embrace it and say, oh, all I want to learn how I can stop bedwetting. What, what is the difference? So what I'm going to say is not popular. Wait, everything I've said so far mm -hmm. is not popular. But I will, I, I will say this. I am convinced that there has been a bit of a change in terms of people's willingness to do their own research and combine that with what others are saying. I'm saying it because I believe that a lot of people who come into our field are coming from a educational system, bring it in from high school, etc., where it's about fulfilling criteria, not the process of learning, not the process of critical thinking, not the process of asking questions and questioning yourself. It's about getting a grade and checking a box. In fact, oftentimes the courses that are get lower scores are the ones where there aren't clear answers. They invest, the teacher doesn't care about your grade, rather cares more about whether you learn. And those are the ones that people complain about more. So the ones that are easy are the ones nobody complains about. This is a problem. Why aren't we complaining about the classes that were easy and being happy about the classes that were justifiably hard? Which person, who who is giving A's to everybody and everyone's going and complaining about it? Nobody. Isn't that a problem? Of course it's a problem. I think that's a problem. But I think it's a problem also as to what's being expected of students. And I'll give you an example of a friend of mine who is working on their PhD, who I was talking with actually today, who who was marked down on an assignment and the feedback that the professor gave was, all of your insights are awesome, your thought presses are awesome, but you didn't respond with the 350 word response that's required in the syllabus. Okay. So, and what the professor was saying is, follow the rules and stay in the box. It doesn't really, what you think well, is no, really no. secondary. Yeah. Yeah, I um I think I think <laughs> I think it's bigger than we want it. So the fact that we're even holding back on this okay, everybody should know. There's a conversation we have before we hit record, Leash, I hate you. <laughs> and there's a conversation that we have when we hit record. If we really want to have the conversation if you really want to hear the, the conversation before, you're not going to like it. No one's going to like hearing what, you know, people are the conversations that are happening when people are screenshotting each other, right? That's the conversation that is hurtful and probably hits more to the core of what the problems are. And I love that every time we have a topic, it can be about the best toe jam recipes all the way to head and neck cancer to this. We will still come back to is our field really qualified to put out clinicians to service this particular problem? We always end up here. So it's just sort of like this, this larger umbrella that we, that this conversation is not just being had by us. This conversation is being had by a lot of people. We just happen to have a different kind of platform, but we still have to edit the crap out of things out of, because 
we, you know, we don't want, we want to be able to be influential, but not be so provocative and controversial that people can't take the message in because people don't want to hear all the time about how they're not doing their job properly, right? And the same thing with, 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 with patients. If you don't have difficulty set just above what they could do before, they're not motivated. They'll just be like, well, fine, no one's doing it right. I'm not even going to bother. So, you know, I would say, Ed, then these are all great questions you're asking. And you know we, we have the same question and we know what the answer is. But what would you say is a real, and I'm only throwing this out at you because I get this all the time by the end of the thing. So what do we do? What do we do about this? What do we do? What do we do about this problem? What do you think, Ed? What do we do about this problem? Well, you know what I do? I push back. Mm-hmm. You know, if this were my professor, I would go to them and say, so let me understand that you think that me staying within the box is more valuable than actually the content of my uh, of my assignment. But I'm asking you, you what we do about this problem in our field about speech pathologists perhaps not being sufficiently good or adequate at managing dysphagia, which is really what we're talking about here. You know, we are we're talking about these things that trickle down from it, but the larger question really is well, first, Ed, I would say to you, yes or no, do you think that we're adequate? No. Okay, and then you think we're not adequate because what? Because we don't have the critical knowledge that's necessary to analyze what we're actually doing. We don't even know what we're treating. Are we treating aspiration? Are we treating coughs? Are we treating throat clears? Are we, what are we treating? We don't even know the answer to this question. And the reason, okay, so that is that is why you don't think and so would you say that there is you know what people say if you had all the money and influence in the world what would you do what do you think the solution is if, if anything well i i think this the solution is that generalists should not be treating swallowing but can they treat voice and speech and language though no i, I don't think so I, I think we've had this i had this discussion when we were on the podcast um before where I said, I think every class should be taught as if this were your specialty. That if you're gonna pass this class, you could be a specialist in this area. So you think it's possible for one class to cover specialty? Well, so so I am taking a refresher class right now in, in neuroscience. And the professor said, expect to spend 20 to 25 hours a week on this class. I think that if for 14 weeks I spend 25 hours on this class, I should have come out of that class with some pretty good knowledge, mm-hmm. plus the time that I spend in class, right? So, I, but I don't think that we have that rigor and expectation in our program currently. So, if we give, sorry, if, we, if we have too much to do, and I understand, I mean, how would I, if I were taking a, a, a five courses right now, how would I spend 20 to 25 hours on each course, but- And clinical practicums. Pardon me? And add in spending X amount of hours doing clinical practicums to get experience. Right, so I think that the whole structure of, of how we do things is different, we, is, is wrong. We don't lay the foundation first. People don't understand anatomy and physiology and neuroscience and exercise principles and all of these things as a foundation. We don't have it and we're just piecemealing as we go along and we end up with a bunch of bits and pieces when we leave, but nothing connects. There's no dots to connect because 
it's just a bunch of siloed information. I agree with you 100%. And so let me just say this, Leash, real quick. I agree with you 100%. I've been saying this and stomping on this this point for a long time. I would also argue that this then, by the time you get to a setting where you have a physician who doesn't want to get you something, you're not even prepared for that setting because we don't train that. So of course, the same person who was in school for the grade and wanted to be validated and wanted to make sure they got good grades and wants to come out wearing that t-shirt that says, I'm a speech pathologist. I do reading, AAC, swallowing, stuttering. You don't know what we do. We do everything. We're superheroes. Any, if you wear that shirt with excitement, then you got the wrong idea because in fact, that means we do nothing well, which is what's shown over and over again. It's not just us. I talk to folks in voice and other areas and they go, oh my God, it takes so long to get someone to be a specialist. But of course, then the argument is then maybe the two years is to be a generalist and we shouldn't be practicing right after. We should have sort of residency so you can specialize in something. But that takes a major effort from the governing bodies to do. So you're stuck with the situation with the training itself is responsible for the, the type of practice that we have. Yeah, and I don't so, think that training is ad adequate for what we are expected to do when we graduate. So as a thought experiment, why do you guys think that dysphagia isn't a medical specialty where you go to medical school, no different from gastroenterology, no different from specializing in renal function, cardiology, anything, swallowing is complicated. Why isn't, or, or could it potentially move in this direction where if you're going to be a what the, what's the term that deglutologist uses? Deglutologist. Deglutologist. You want to be a deglutologist that you need to start with four years at medical school and then you spend a year in residency, special um, uh, in dysphagia management. Nobody's saying nobody's saying no to that. I mean, here's the thing. When I heard that idea, I remember thinking it was a pretty exciting um, way to think about things. But the powers that be don't want to lose the money. Keep keep in mind everything that's driving everything is them almighty dollar if it's true and I'll, i i concur with this idea that the vast majority of people in the medical settings in speech pathologists are doing swallowing and asha in 2017 put out a report showing that among slps in the school system they say that 35 percent of their um of their caseload is swallowing and that's because they're mainstreaming a lot of kids if this is not in our scope of practice because there's another field that took it over, I mean, look how much we scream at nurses and OTs for even walking close to us. They said the word pharynx and we have our daggers out to chop up their pharynx. It's just like, calm down. So the likelihood that that's ever going to happen is not going to impact, is not going to, you know, it, it, there would have to be a very powerful body or unfortunately a very, very big publicized fail. I was just I was just gonna say if Beyonce or Barack Obama got dysphagia, it would shake things up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can I shift topics now to, to get us yeah. on a different track? So can we talk about our responsibility in helping improve quality of life? So in this podcast, Jim talks a lot about I became a hermit because I, I, I work for this company and I, I have my home office. And so now I can't go out to eat or drink with my friends. And at what juncture is it our responsibility to say to the patient, what are the things you can live with and what are the things you can't live with? 
how do you define quality of life? And I and I go back to have you read the book Being Mortal? No. It's a it's a great book by a surgeon, and um, he tells stories about his patients. Most of the, of the patients that he works with are are cancer patients, and one of them is his own father. But through his practice, one of the things he learns to say to his patients before he takes them to surgery is, so what is, how do you define quality of life? What is it that would make you want to get up tomorrow? And some patients say things like, as long as I can drink coffee and watch football, I'm, I will be happy. And he would say, okay, well, the result of the surgery will allow you to drink coffee and watch football. So we're all good. But, but we, you know, at what point do we say to our patients, what defines quality of life for you? And if they say, well, if I can't eat, I would just rather die. Mm-hmm. then what do we do with that? Well, I think the difference is when you're talking about a situation where you know you can choose between something that will or will not impact it. So let's think about people who have a tumor and there's some thought that if we remove it, it could impact these nerves that can completely make your swallowing way worse. Then they might have the opportunity a priori to say, if there is more than an X percent risk that I'm not going to eat, let me just have my bad situation now. It's a little different when somebody comes in with a stroke and they want to get back to it um, because, and you have no real idea of how likely it is that they'll ever get back to it. Everyone wants them to. So I'm wondering if that line of questioning is to get the SLP out of the way. And I get your point about, as opposed to the surgeon, the surgery out of the way, because everybody knows that unless it's an emergency, people don't just do surgery on people. Like they have to consent to it. We don't even get to consent to rehab in the same way. We just sort of get this idea that I'm, I'm just going to get rehab and they're in charge. But really, if we had a consenting process where the where people, the SLP had to describe all the ins and outs of this and say, hey, there's a strong likelihood based on the data we've been collecting about our practice for the last five years that you are going to go through this and still not get any different be any different in your ability to eat different things do you want to just eat them anyway or do you want to go through this process and maybe you're going to be different maybe you're not that's quite a different question because it it requires a speech pathologist to know what their data are which is not the case it requires a speech pathologist to be willing to step out of the way to allow someone to get better which as you remember ed he when you were met uh jim he said they didn't I, they wouldn't allow me to get better. Like this SLP wouldn't step out of the way and just let this person get better by eating. That's that's not easy to do. And then, frankly, the SLP has to step out of the way and say, my productivity is not my main goal for, for the day. It's actually whether or not this patient wants even to be with me when I give honest information. I think we should compare our field more to cardiologists who, when patients come in with heart disease, right? A lot of times the reason that they have major heart disease is because of the the food choices that they've made over their lives. And never does a cardiologist sit down with a patient and say, you have to eat this. You cannot eat this. They just give general, like broad stroke information. And the patients always get to choose what they want to do with that information. They may choose to go and eat Big Macs every single meal for the rest of their lives, because that is what they attach their quality of life to. And that's absolutely they're right they have the autonomy to do that and nobody gets nobody tells them well you now you have to sign a form and there's not this attachment to their choices as there as there is in our field for some reason Mm -hmm. and i think we should go more on that model of like just allowing patients to have the autonomy back yeah but do you think that comes 
with a level of confidence in your knowledge. Like the cardiologist understands the whole process, understands the various outcomes, and he's comfortable with that or she is comfortable with that knowledge. And so they don't feel like they have to police the patients. They're just there to educate the patients and to kind of be their partner on the journey, not to be in charge. I think that's a big part of it. But I also think the other part of it is not just knowing whether or not your, you know, your data suggests or being comfortable with it, which is important, but it's also your, your data should be telling you how comfortable you should be. So cardiologists don't tie the, the patient's decision to a failure on their part because they know at some point that there are so many people coming to their office with all these issues that it's not like, well, uh, you know, I, I didn't do this, therefore that. It's just, this is, a, this is the epidemic, like this heart, <laughs> these people with heart problems because of lifestyle. At some point they may come back, at some point they don't. They're not tied to it as an as a individual, the way Alicia was saying. It's not like, this is a reflection on me. This is the way the system works and this is human behavior. Yeah. Hmm. So I, then I think that it's interesting. So what if they took our approach? Let's, let's consider that. So what if they started following the patient around or sent, <laughs> had a test that followed the patient and when they bought a Snickers bar, they called the doctor back and said, they're eating a Snickers. And so then the doctor comes running in and, you know, screaming and yelling at the patient, you know what's going to happen to you if you eat this Snickers bar? You know, I, I mean, and I, Alicia, people can't see you, but you're laughing hysterically. But, but, but the but reality is this is what we're doing. Well, and think about it in terms of candidacy for surgery, right? Can't you imagine a world where, well, you need a quadruple bypass and to ensure that you get this surgery, we're going to put a device on you where we can watch what you eat and drink. And if you comply against our recommendations and you eat a Big Mac, you're you're going to suffer the consequences for that. You're not going to be a candidate. But um, wait, let's take it a step further. If you want to do gastric bypass, you have to at least assure them that you're not going to eat horrible food. And the reason is because it will, it might kill you, right? You're going to have a very small stomach. So if you eat too much, then you, that, that you, you're not even a candidate for the surgery. And they don't take that personally because they don't want there to be bad outcomes. So, I mean, again, there are so yeah. many parallels that you can take as, and I love that, third, that thought exercise of what would it be like if, you know, the endocrinologist followed you around and checked to see how much sugar you had? You know, it, it, it would, it, people wouldn't even go through them anymore, especially if they didn't even know when someone was diabetic, which is our situation. Half the people- I'm sorry, but I'm just imagining the cart, like the patient coming into the cardiologist and the cardiologist billing patients to sit there and watch them eat their vegetables. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's, it's funny, but it's what we're doing, yeah. right? Like we're billing patients. I've seen patients that have been seen for 50 to 60 sessions mm -hmm. in like a, in like inpatient rehab where the therapist is just watching them eat to make sure that they're using their strategies or that they're not coughing, right? Oh. I mean, it's outrageous when mm -hmm. you think about it in a different profession. Yeah. No, 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 Alicia, they're doing diet trials. Oh. Diet trials, right, right, right. I mean, oh. this is how we justify it. We're doing diet trials. Hey, and I've done it. I've done it. Like, I'm not here to like point fingers. Like, I have been there. Mm -hmm. I've been oh. there. Mm -hmm. I, I did many years ago and as well. I, and, because I learned, I didn't know you know, and I learned. But I mean. 
I mean, I, re- I remember being, I remember being at a sniff as a brand new clinician and thinking, what the hell is this really, is this okay? Am I supposed to be doing this? And it's like this. It's all centered around fear. It's all centered around fear. It's fear. We made a recommendation. I don't want my patient to choke because I'm the one that decided that it was okay. So now I have to sit here and watch you because for some reason me watching you is going to mean that you don't choke. And then that way, if you cough, I can say, well, they didn't do their chin tuck. Yeah. And it's all this fear and like justification for our field and wanting to prove ourselves. It's used that something earlier at about the, about the power. And it was, that was so profound. Like it really is so much of what we talk about and the frustration centers around fear. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, I agree a hundred percent. So another point that I got from Jim, I'm just kind of jumping all over the place. That's I'm okay. sorry. I'm just random thoughts was the level of education that he was provided. Mm. He didn't understand what his impairment was. And he didn't understand why he was doing the therapy or what the therapy was supposed to do to help this impairment. He talked about physical therapy and how he understood that very well. And he understood the exercises were going to lead to to this outcome. But he never understood, he was never educated to the point that he understood his swallowing problem until he came to see the two of you. And then he never understood the point of any of the exercises. And so I think at a very basic level, at least we could do this, right? Uh, as a therapist. Well, what do you the think? thing is, a therapist doesn't know. Do you, the do you really know think, do you really think that, okay, again, I'm not going to edit this shit out. Sorry, but do you really <laughs> think that it is possible that I could get a strong physiologic rationale for why given his deficits, which were, he had no laryngeal vestibule closure. He had no base of tongue retraction. He had no pharyngeal squeeze and his UES barely opened until he had the Botox. Do you think that I could get a, uh, um, a speech pathologist to uh, that speech pathologist to tell me why it made sense for him to do a Shakir, the physiologic rationale or why it would make sense for him to do a uh, what the other Eastem without swallowing, just strap it on. So here's the thing. Let me just let me just go into this really quickly. The goal of the Shakir is supposedly to target the submentals, which then target the hyoid, which at some point somehow target the larynx, which is supposed to add uh, provide traction to an already relaxed UES to further stretch it open. He's had a brainstem stroke. He's got, I don't think he had any, he had no laryngeal elevation. He had a little bit of anterior movement. He had no relaxation because of vagus, because of the bad patterning of his brainstem stroke. So what kind of behavioral thing would the Shakir do when you're all the way up at the submentals, which by the way, do not elevate the larynx. So you have to know what the role of the submentals are. You have to know the role of laryngeal elevation. You have to know the inhibition of the vagus nerve. You have to understand brainstem mechanisms. Where Where is that coming from? If that's not there, if they can't explain it to themse- himse- themselves, then let's say they can. They're, they're very, very well un- understand all this stuff. It's really hard to break down those complex concepts to a patient even when you know it. We are so f- many steps away from the likelihood that education was ever going to happen, it doesn't even make sense. 
It's like making, it's like, it's like somebody who was only told that they shouldn't even say the word sex and they do the rhythm method to explain to somebody the details of, you know, anal sex. What the hell? They don't want to say sex. And we're talking about anal sex now? This is too far from what their training was. I don't know why we're talking about anal sex. And I said I wouldn't edit this out, but there, I've said it. Another sphincter to consider. Right. So here's, so here's my, here's my thought about saying that besides all your awesome analogies that I wouldn't even begin to touch. <laughs> you won't touch um, anal sex, Ed? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on. So, uh, <laughs> so <sighs> at what point do I, as a speech pathologist, I mean, I get, so I, I get, I have productivity standards and, and I understand that, that I, that, that I am in fit, you know, in a, in a position of privilege and have been my whole career. One, I'm a white male, right? So if I go to a doctor and I say, I'm doing this and I need you to do this, that it's that it's much more likely to happen because of who I am, not because of what I know. Um, but hopefully I know something to back that up. Or that if I challenge the doctor that it's much more well-received, um, which I have done on a regular basis. But at what point do I, as the average therapist in an average situation, when I look at someone like him and his swallow do i say i have no clue what to do here and i need to check out it's what alicia said in the podcast though she asked the same question and can i just address this idea that because i just i will say this over and over again i'm the least white and the least male of the two of us of the three of us in this conversation and i have found that the idea that you walk in there and you kill them with competence goes so much far beyond whatever expectations they have of you. So really, I get your point, but any really competent, confident SLP can often break through more barriers. But your next point about saying they don't know requires you to be okay with with the fact that you don't know. If this person has been faking it till they make it, at what point do they say, oh, this is the one time I don't fake it because I care about the patient? If that's your motto with your whole job, this is there's never going to be a time that you don't fake it. And you, by make it means don't get fired. It doesn't mean make that person swallow again. Right. And, I, and like, I will say, yeah, I, I Hold on, hold on. You guys are talking at the same time. Ed, go first. Yeah, I agree with you because one of the things that uh, as I traveled around the country and I would talk about these concepts, therapists would concede, yes, you're right. You know, like changing all these diets is madness and, and doing all of this that, you know, that we've been doing is madness. So where do we start or how do we fix this? And I would say, well, the first thing that you have to do is uh, uh, Monday morning, you have to call uh, a meeting with the medical director and the director of nursing and the administrator. And you have to sit down and say, remember all those things we told you about how important it was for people to eat this or not eat that. And you have to say all of that was just made up. We didn't know that we were making it up and now we know better. And so we're going to start all over. Is that okay with you? And I said, so are you willing to do that? And of course, no, we're not willing to do that. But at the same time, like myself, when I was doing PRN, it was a weekend rotation at, at a hospital and I had the physician come to me and say uh, a patient who had had her fifth stroke and I did an extensive, looked at her history, talked to her extensively about what her respiratory status was. She was obviously aspirating. I, you know, I didn't need an MBS to tell me that she was aspirating. She was obviously aspirating and had been for a long time, had been through five strokes, rehab, 
been put on thickened liquids, gone home, wasn't taking thickened liquids and was doing great. And the doctor says to me, well, we typically put patients like this on thickened liquids. And my response was, well, you're the doctor, you can do whatever you want. And she said, but why didn't you recommend thickened liquids? And I said, because her, she has a history of aspiration with no consequence. And the doctor kind of screwed up her face. And I said, well, you know, not everyone who aspirates gets pneumonia. And the doctor said, really? And I said, yes, really. And so we had a long conversation. I'll get long story short. I ended up spending 20 minutes going through all the literature about aspiration pneumonia, et cetera, with this physician. And finally she walked away and said, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, her go-to was we typically put patients like this on thickened liquids because that's the answer to our problem. As you said, I loved that part when you said, we need to basically say, I call bullshit malarkey, baloney, all these all these um, comments and say, strategically, we have realized that as a team, we need to hit the next level. Maybe there's some sort of way to say it where you're not like firing yourselves, right? But it's the same thing as the person who says, so there's been a bank error that's been giving me an extra $300 a month for five years. I'm going to stop that. Uh, and because, you know, that might be somebody else's $300. Not many people are going to do that either. So Leash, what were you going to say to that? You don't know what you don't know. And that's part of the problem is that we keep saying that we're talking about clinicians or, or researchers. This isn't just a clinician problem, but like, you know, it's being able to say like, well, like there's this other level and I'm not at that level. I think most people who are practicing believe that they're practicing at the top of their license. Yeah. Right. And I can attest to this because I didn't realize how incompetent I was until I started my PhD training. Mm -hmm. And I trained with somebody who was at a different level than I was, right? And it was through that experience that made me realize a lot of what I'd been doing wasn't the best, wasn't the best practice for my patients. And it was eye-opening. So I think we have to acknowledge that it's like, there's not like there's this gold standard that's blatantly out there about what people should be doing. It's people are doing what they think is the best that they're doing and that this is just where the whole field is at. Yes. I don't think people realize that we can understand swallowing at a different level. I learned more about swallowing by taking courses that had nothing to do with swallowing that were about neurophysiology that were about brainstem motor control. I learned more about swallowing through those courses than I did ever taking any sort of CEU or advanced dysphagia courses or any anything like that. So I think that we have to acknowledge that there's just no gold standard out there for what people should be doing. But Alicia, I'm assuming that I'm the person you're talking about you train with, but I didn't actually tell you stuff about swallowing. I mean, we may have those conversations. All I did was ask you if you were sure that you knew what you thought you knew which is mostly my job in life, is to ask people if they think they know what they really know. So if somebody comes in and says, well, I mean, we're doing Shakir's for UES, I'll say, can you help me understand why you're doing the Shakir for the UES? And they'll look at me like, why are you even asking me that? Everybody knows. I'm like, does everybody know? But secondarily, they're like, well, how come the research says this? I'm like, did you know that in the research, they didn't only pull people with dysphagia because of UES problems in the UES study? And it's like, they didn't? No. So when you expose those kinds of things, people like you will go, well, I'm, I'm a student, I'm here to learn. So you're gonna go out of your way to go, you're gonna read all the Shakir papers, you're gonna read all the, all the Grey's Anatomy stuff, you're gonna put it together, come back and go, 
oh my god okay let me just start with holy shit let's talk through this for an hour unfortunately that's that model that socrates type model or socratic method is supposed to be the way we learn things deeply so we learn more of what we should know and what we can't possibly know but the method now is tell people what they need to know to pass the praxis and then see if a cfy supervisor walks you through things and it's the human body it's the most complicated thing ever we created an economy the economy is complicated and if that's human made I mean, the human body is so much more complicated. So why would we think that there would be a, a, a checklist that we could ever go through? That to me is the issue. Right. That people don't want to admit how much work is required to get where they need to go. And they don't want to do it. They just want to complain that it, they didn't get it in the first place. Yeah. Well, I think that transitions nicely into where we're moving forward with this podcast is doing another physiology series to talk about things like sensation and cortical control and biofeedback and exercise physiology because I think that as we're griping and talking through all these issues I think that's probably the best that we can offer the field is to talk through some of these concepts that um, that we have talked about in the past that maybe some of us have gotten in training like Ed you're talking about you're taking a neuroscience course like you're not taking an advanced dysphagia course somewhere you're taking a neuroscience course because these are the concepts that help us understand better what we're doing with our patients and how to be better and to provide a model of how to think through problems with our patients that's more than just at the surface can we can we say something that might be helpful to everyone and that is <laughs> that none of the three of us when a patient is presented in front of us, we don't have a checklist that say, oh, they do this and they do this. And so we're going to do this and we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Every patient is a, a study of it with an N of one. And so we just synthesize the information that we have and, and do the, take the best that we know and maybe even um, dialogue with some of our colleagues who have better experience than us or may have treated this kind of case more than us. But we don't have a checklist that says, if they do this, then we do this. And if we do this, that we're playing with this and figuring it out, that we don't have the answers, that this is an ongoing experiment. And it's okay to say, I don't know, and that it's okay to not know, but try to figure it out or try to get help to figure it out and not just pretend that you know. And that's okay. It's not, it's not, doesn't mean you're a bad person. That's where learning begins and that's where we all are really. Yeah, I think we all need somebody in our life to say, why do you think you know that? And you might find that you do know it, but at least you will have gone through the exercise of validating and revalidating what you think you know and putting aside the things that you don't. Um, but importantly, I think that this is a good discussion that we're, I'm happy. I think, I think we got to the heart of not so much just Jim's case. It's not, wasn't our goal to just talk about Jim's case, but it was more so to talk about the system that led Jim to go through down this path. And that's why we're talking right now, because there is a system that we're all a part of, um, and, um, uh, uh, um, Alicia and I far more intimately involved in his particular case. Uh, that and that led Jim to be in this circumstance. And, you know, there are going to be a lot of people who aren't happy about this discussion. It's like you're beating up on the speech pathologist and you're saying all these mean things and you're not giving us solutions. We haven't even all agreed that there's a problem. This is my bigger yeah. thing. We're not in a place where everybody's, not because they're, you know, defined and don't want and want their, to be validated in their job, but because they don't even know that there's a problem. 
So we are still, I feel like our three years on this podcast, Alicia, has been trying to arm waving and saying, this place is on fire. The house is on fire. And some people are like, it is, but, and some people are like, what? Everything seems fine. And then there's like people like Ed who was like, yeah, I've been screaming that for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. I mean, there, there is a certain, you know, central theme that we kind of come back to in every episode, but you know, it's important to me that, that we say, I guess what I'll say is that to your point that some people don't like to hear it, I think we're still going to keep saying it, you know? And I think that it's so important because at the end of the day, we want our field to move forward in the right direction and not the wrong direction. And sometimes it takes conversations that are uncomfortable, tough love, but really, but really with the end goal of a positive outcome. And I think we are moving in that direction. I think that there's been a lot of positive change in our field over the past couple of years, not saying that's due to us, but I think it's due to people being more open about having these types of conversations. I hope that we've played a small part in that. I like to discuss these things. And I think that if we don't discuss these things then we're going to stay stagnant in our field and somebody else is going to take it over. Oh yeah. I, I agree. I think that the conversation has shifted a lot in the last couple of years. And I think that your podcast in combination with a lot of other uh, podcasts and conversations have really helped to move the ball. Yeah. And I think because the first step of any program is to realize you have a problem, right? A 12 step program. First step is to acknowledge you have a problem. And I mm -hmm. think that after all of these years, we're very close to acknowledging that we have a problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's January. So we're in step one, which is acceptance, right? Isn't that the first one? I think we can. That's, that's, a, that's after acknowledgement. I think acceptance is after. Wait, you guys were talking the same time. What? Leash. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I think accept. You have to acknowledge you have a problem before you can accept it first, right? Yeah. So is an acceptance stage two. So I, I still think we're kind of on stage one. Oh, so acknowledgement is the first one. Like, hey, I have a problem, or just not being. That's the hardest mind. one, right? Isn't that the hardest? Is is the acceptance phase? Yep. Somebody go to AA and report back. I know. <laughs> <laughs> See, we need to take a class outside of our field to understand this concept so that we can apply it. Yeah. Well, That's guys, true. this was really yeah. a good conversation. And um, I'm really hoping that the, you know, the kinds of emails that and messages that we've been getting about his case, I hope it resonates in a way where people take action. Because again, people are looking for a hero and in the words of Tina Turner, we don't need another hero. Actually, what needs to happen is everyone needs to take a half step forward. This grassroots idea is so much more important. Just really looking at what you're doing and asking if you're doing the best that you can, not the best we can, because we're bigger than the system we're in. If we fought our way and clawed our way to get in, while we're here, we have the capacity to do better while we're here. We're, this is the perfect place for us to succeed. We're not clawing our way into speech, but into swallowing the way we used to be. Let's take advantage of this opportunity to make the best of something that people love to do, which is eat. We get to be the gatekeepers to let people eat. I think that's an amazing opportunity as opposed to keeping people from eating. You know, when you look at it that way, you should actually be really excited about these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, I agree. Thanks, Ed, for joining us. Um, I'm sure we'll see you back again. Thanks. All right, guys. Talk to you soon.
Bye. 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 Bye.